0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Morning, everyone. Look at that clip. It made me think about um, a quote from C.S. Lewis and wrote a really well-known book by the title of Mere Christianity. And in it he writes, uh, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And he's speaking of Jesus. And he quotes, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is what is known as C.S. Lewis's trilemma. In which we're either, I mean, when we, when we come face-to-face with the person of Jesus Christ, we really only have three options that we can choose from. And we can't choose one of, hey, Jesus was simply a great teacher or a moral teacher or he was this revolutionary religious person. And of course, atheists would, uh, would argue this point. But in reality, we're left with the choices of Jesus being either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And these are some serious choices to make, life-altering choices to make, depending on which one you choose. And as you all know, I'm a firm believer that Jesus is Lord. And I realize that this is a personal and individual choice we have to make. I also believe that a marker of a believer that genuinely has Jesus as Lord of their life will, I mean, this will be a marker, that they will treasure Christ above all else. So the question is this is do we genuinely, authentically, and in reality treasure Christ above all? Here's a question to ponder. Imagine that you and I all had a Job moment in which everything we valued, everything we deemed important or even essential for life, was stripped away from us in In a twinkling of an eye. The question is, like, let's wrestle with this: Is would having Jesus Christ be enough for you at that point? And let's be honest with that question. You can fool a preacher, but you can't fool the Lord. And as a body, like us, to wrestle with that. And for some of us in here, perhaps there was a pause in your answering. For others, maybe there was an immediate yes. And maybe for some others, there was an outright no. And maybe everything in between, like, hey, I certainly hope so, if that, would ha- if that were to happen to me. Or maybe for some of you, it's, I honestly don't know. And I'm sure our responses are across the board. And these are the times that I wish I had that little device that every member in the audience of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire has, you know, those little responders where you can pick one of four choices to see what people choose. And really, the question or the issue is not about how much Jesus treasures us. As I showed a video about how much the Father loves us. And it's not about how much we treasure Christ. And I'm not saying that, that how much Jesus treasures us doesn't matter. I say this because I know how much Jesus treasures us. He gave up His life to redeem His bride. But really, I believe the issue to be, how much do we treasure Christ? And to be honest, sometimes I feel very bad for Jesus. (laughs) I mean, think about it. The Bible calls us the church. One of the descriptors of the church, it calls us the bride of Christ. As you guys know, my imagination wanders when I read the scriptures at times. I was thinking about Ephesians 5 where Paul instructs husbands and wives. And um, just go with me. This is just my imagination. This is not doctrinal truth here, okay, in terms of the picture I'm portraying. But I picture Jesus laying in a a counseling chair, speaking with a counselor. And this counselor was asking Jesus some some questions about about his marriage. And we all know, of course, Jesus needs no counsel, okay? Um, This is my mere imagination. But the counselor asked Jesus, tell me about your bride. And in my imagination, I just picture Jesus taking a deep breath. Whew, let me tell you about my bride. You know, I give up myself for her every second of the day. I am for her. I'm always for her. There's never a moment in the day in which I'm not for my bride. But one moment she professes to love me and the next moment she tells me that she hates me. I gave up my life to save her and at times she's thankful but at any given moment she blames me for everything that is wrong with her life. One moment she swears loyalty to me alone, and the next moment she's chasing after other men. One moment I have her full undivided attention, and the next she acts as though I don't exist. You guys get the point. The problem isn't with our Savior. The problem is with us as his bride. We are unfaithful brides so often and this is not offensive language because it's in the word of God. We we often are the brides, as Hosea tells us, that whore after other things. And read Hosea sometime. And one of the messages of Hosea is that you and I all fall into that category of being Gomer. And the reason why it's designed that way is that so that we would see that there's only one who is faithful, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is I know this is very basic Christianity, very basic teaching, but all throughout the Old and New Testament, the, the central figure, it, really it's all about Jesus. And as Christ followers, we need to be explicitly Jesus-centric. To be gospel-centered means that we claim that it's all about Jesus it's all about his life. It's all about his death. It's all about his resurrection. It's all about his ascension. It's all about his return. It's all about his grace. It's all about his teachings and his ways. But oftentimes in our lives, it's really not all about Jesus. I think there are some in America that have a distorted view of Christianity. Some in America approach Christianity as in, hey, what's in it for me? You know, we can take the stance of seeking the benefits of Christianity but leaving Christ out of the picture. I want the, I want the benefits of being forgiven, of being prosperous or of or being reconciled and redeemed, but Jesus, sometimes I just don't want you. There are also others that, that believe that Christian, Christianity is all about doing and performance. The bottom line is this, is that at, in our faith, at the core, at its foundation, in its most basic form, it's all about Jesus. Can we, can we say that? It's all about Jesus. And it has to be all about Jesus. Why? Because the way God has designed it is that it's all about His glory and His renown and His fame and His name throughout this world. And guess what? When you receive Christ, do you know what you get? What do you think you get? You get everything, indeed. But before you get everything, you get Christ. Just think about that. When you receive Christ, you get Christ. And this concept had blown the mind of the Apostle Paul, that in Ephesians You know, whenever you struggle with identity or you you struggle with with self-worth and image, just read Ephesians over and over again. Because Ephesians tells us how Jesus feels about his bride. But in chapter 2, verse 7, this is not up on the screen, Paul talks about that as believers, we've been given the immeasurable riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of the grace of Jesus we've been given. you You can't measure it. There's no way to even quantify the grace that you and I have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But, but yet, so often, we get so consumed with entitlement. So many, it, it's shocking to me that how many people think that God just wants me to be happy. He wants me to prosper. And yes, you know what? That is true. There is genuine joy, lasting joy in Christ. And yes, you know what? Jesus does want us to prosper. And I'm not down on prosperity. I'm down on what we define as prosperity. But think about this. We've been given his immeasurable grace. And why? To show us it's not about about us. It's about him. Look at um, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. Paul writes, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that those who live might not no, long, no longer live for themselves, but for who? For him. So yes, it's all about treasuring Christ. How much do you treasure him? You see, I love all the identity verses in the Bible. They're they're wonderful and they're true. And we're we're to live in all of those realities of those identity passages in the Bible. But I think, though, we sometimes forget the, quote, unquote, hard identities. You know how there are hard sayings in the Scripture? There are also a couple of hard identity statements. For example, here's just one, Galatians 2.20. Paul gives us this identity statement that is a hard one. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, part of our identity also in Christ is this, is have you ever considered that you are dead? You are dead to sin now? That you have been crucified? I've been literally killed with jesus i don't live any longer i'm I'm a dead man and why so that jesus can simply live and reign in this vessel and this was the core of paul's message you look at even paul's letters and when they were written right even 30 even 30 years towards the end of his life the message never changes the content never changes in the letter. Yeah, he, he tackles many different topics, but it's all Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. Paul says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except who? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not to say that Paul never taught on anything else other than the crucifixion, because this really has to do with the totality of his message. In other words, it was always centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, whether it was expounding teaching, whether it was literally talking about his death or his resurrection or how to live in light of Christ. And we all know that Paul didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk so much so that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. And we're going to look at this. We're going to look at maybe one of his uh, just simple bodies of teaching in Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. And as we read this, I want you just to see, I mean, just maybe just keep your ears open to see how, how centered on Christ is this teaching here. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Brothers and sisters, we're to treasure Christ. Christ alone and nothing else. One of the summary statements here too could be like saying that Paul is instructing us that there's nothing else other than the person and work of Jesus in which we can place any ounce of hope. And here we see Paul teaching about rejoicing and then he begins to tackle this to- topic of false teachers. He warns the believers in Philippi, look out for the dogs. Who were these dogs? These were most likely, what are known as Judaizers, these, the, these people that came and really added, um, really piggybacked onto the gospel and added a system of works. So Jesus plus religious performance equals acceptance before God, really. And hence, they came and they distorted. And you know what? Paul calls them dogs. And it's not a nice term, all right? And you have to think, in Paul's day, what did he refer to dogs? It's not what we refer today as dogs. He's most likely referring to to roaming dogs on the street who weren't very nice, right? Who were very aggressive and who would often go just looking. I'm spending their whole day looking for some food to eat. And he says, these are like the false teachers. They're, They're looking for people to prey upon. And he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Why were the Judaizers considered as people who mutilate the flesh? Because they, they added works to the gospel. They preached a, really a, a system of works that make you right before God. And Paul is saying that if you just have the external, if you just have the circumcision, or if you just do the performance but, but the heart is not changed, you are equivalently mutilating the flesh. Then he says we he says that he says to the believers there, we are the circumcision. We are the ones that have been changed from the inside out by the Spirit of God, and we are the ones that worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And how does Paul say the believer glories in Christ Jesus? We put no confidence in the flesh. Guys, the flesh has nothing to offer, but yet how often do we, do, we, do we not live that way or believe that? We think that we bring something to the table or we know better at times. And you've got to love this, that Paul, after saying that, that, that the way a person glories in Jesus Christ is by, is by not putting any confidence in the flesh, he says, he says, you know what? If there were any case to be made of putting confidence in the flesh, I'm the top dog is what Paul is saying. In terms of religious performance, in terms of, of meeting, um, you know, meeting religious excellence and standards, he has confidence in the flesh. He's, he's also insulting these Judaizers as well. He tells them he's circumcised on the eighth day. Every male was to be circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law in Leviticus. And he knew his pedigree. He, was, he came from the chosen people of Israel. And he identified which exact tribe from Israel he came from, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. We know that, that Paul was a devout Pharisee. As a young man, he surpassed, I mean, every, every other man as a Pharisee in terms of performance and observance. We also know, not here in Philippians, he had... He had the top education in his day. He was highly educated and highly skilled, highly trained in rhetoric as well. And he says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was passionate about what I believed in. And as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. See, that term righteousness is very interesting. So, you know, many times it's explained as right standing. We're talking about, uh, you know, you're standing before God, and if you're righteous, you have a right standing. Another way to describe it is that you are saying that you have put yourself in a condition in which you are saying, I am acceptable to God. Now, what is God's standard of righteousness? Yeah, it is Jesus. But if we were to summarize his, his standard, it would be perfection, right? I don't know about you, um, there, I know that there are many different uh, uh, skilled craftsmen in this room. I'm not one of them. I just know enough to make myself a little dangerous, right? Um, and there are many of you that are very skilled in some kind of musical ability, like playing the piano, and some of you, you know, do dance and some type of performance. And, you know, I'm always, I'm always baffled that like, when I see, like, for example, I go to a friend's house and, you know, I'm, like, looking at his back deck that he made, and it's just, it's just, I mean, just great, you know, Great craftsmanship, and I'm like, man, this is so awesome. But my friend, who's a craftsman, said, "Well, there's some imperfections." And I'm like, I can't even tell. And he'll walk me over. You see this little corner, you know, where you know maybe it's a little off center. Or you ever talk to a piano performer and you listen to the performance, and in your mind it's like perfection, right? You're like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And you talk to your friend and say, that that was perfect. And your friend says, no, I made twelve mistakes. You guys get the point, right? We all even have definitions of righteousness, of what we feel is you know, a condition that's, like, that's acceptable to us as well. You see, God has a standard. It is perfection. And according to Paul, if he were just to use like, a condition acceptable to the observance of external laws, he said, I was flawless. But we know... We know as clearly as Jesus taught, there was a different kind of righteousness that he was talking about. And it was the righteousness of the heart. And Paul says here in 7, whatever gain he had, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, if you were to take a piece of paper and you were to put profit or gain on, and label one column and you were to put loss on the other one, I would say prior to Christ, we had a distorted view of what profit and loss meant. And Paul is now saying that everything that he had put in his gain column prior to knowing Christ, everything that was in that profit column, whether that's a paradigm or whatever identity you felt was important to yourself or whatever goals you felt were important for yourself to achieve as a person, Paul says he literally transfers all of that to that next column and says, I consider it all loss. Loss. And he goes on to say something emphatic. Not only are they lost, they are rubbish. It's trash in comparison to knowing Jesus. And you may be asking, why so dramatic? Because again, coming back to Paul's argument, we can put no confidence in the flesh whatsoever in our performance, in our ability to make ourselves acceptable or put ourselves in an acceptable condition before God. We cannot. And what is it that we gain when we do that? We gain Christ. Amen? We gain Jesus. And it's for his sake that Paul says he suffers the loss of all things, so that why he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ so someone said Jesus is the perfect example of God's perfection and standard and hence how are we given that there's a theological term called whether you agree or disagree with it i firmly accept it it's called imputed righteousness in other words because i am in christ now i've been given all of his benefits and really the imagery too is this, is that if you picture um, a husband and wife getting married, okay, and you picture the husband to be royalty and to be the king, and you picture the wife to be a peasant and, and to have an enormous amount of baggage and, 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 and debt. But when this, when this royalty, right, when this royalty uh, agrees to, uh, and, 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 and this, this woman agreed to marry, right, all the baggage, all the debt, and all the negative and negativity are also given to the spouse. More importantly, all the benefits that the king has are bestowed upon his bride. And it's what theologians also call the divine transaction, the divine exchange. Because we're in Christ, right, as his bride the king gives us a new standing. He gives us everything that belongs to him, and it's credited to us as righteousness. That now, because of Christ alone, we have been placed into a condition in which God can receive us as acceptable. And not only is it a mere like acceptance, like that's just barely passing. You, you, you just made it. No, it's a standard of perfection that when, Christ, you know, when God now looks at the church, who does he see? He sees Christ. Paul says that he wants this righteousness through faith. Why? That I may know the power of his resurrection other so words like I want to consider everything a loss. I want to you know like you take the totality of paul 's teachings, I want to die so that Christ would, would live in me so that I can experience his power, his power that the same power that raised Jesus can become a reality in my life, so that I would see spiritual victories and I would see spiritual breakthroughs and I would see and I would see miraculous happen in my life on a regular basis, but also he says that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death again, Jesus learned. Obedience through suffering, and in his suffering it led to glory. And that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is beautiful because there's also a future hope that Paul is looking to. That in this lifetime, we can experience the realities of Christ, but there's even a greater day to come. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we are to treasure Christ above all things, for he is worthy of our glory. But why is it such a challenge I think it's such a challenge because all of us, every single human here places confidence in something. Every day of the year, every moment of our lives, we place our confidence in something. And if I were to sit down with you long enough and you were to be open and honest with me and answering my questions, you would believe that this is the case as well if you're, un- if you're unconvinced. For example, if I were just to have an open debate forum here and we were to talk about gun con- issue, issues like gun control or the current status of our government or economics or, or personal finance, we would, we would all see that we're placing our confidence in something. In the Bible, there are only two things that you and I can place our confidence in. The Bible, I love how the Bible just narrows it down, don't you, sometimes? It's like, it makes it simple for us. It's really two things and they are the flesh and the Holy Spirit. That's it. Galatians five sixteen through 17, Paul speaks of this reality. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Jesus warns us against placing our confidence in the flesh after giving some very hard teaching to a large crowd you mean, In John 6, that's some of the topics he talks about, about eating his, his flesh and drinking his blood. This is what he says in, in John six sixty It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Paul teaches in Romans 8, 5 through 9, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. So clearly we see that it's really two things that we put our confidence in. And Paul says that in the life of a believer, a believer will not put confidence in the flesh. And I'm not not talking about perfection in your life, all right? In this lifetime, we do have, we still wrestle against the flesh, the world, and Satan. But a question is, what characterizes your life? Is your life characterized by, by, by living in the past? Because Paul clearly says, you know, he doesn't live in the past or, or based on his performance. He considers it all as loss. And that's an example of not putting confidence in the flesh. But at the heart, at the, at the, at the heart of this issue, what really prevents our hearts from treasuring Christ above all else at all, at all times? And there are two places in the scriptures that tell us that we have the ability to either quench the Holy Spirit or to grieve the Holy Spirit. And when I first read those passages, it brought great fear in my heart. We can do that to the Holy Spirit? I mean, we can quench. When, when I first read that word quench, I did think about a fire and, and a fire being, you know, like snuffed out. And when I read in Ephesians four, I read about this grieving, like, wow, I I, I have the ability to make the Holy Spirit sad and and, and to grieve. Let's start with 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-22. We're going to start with quenching the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see, this this phrase, quench the Spirit, I mean, literally does, um, literally refers to a fire, and a fire being snuffed out. And metaphorically, I mean, Paul is saying that it, it really means to stifle or, or to snuff the Holy Spirit. And you may be asking, can the Holy Spirit be stifled or snuffed? No. Paul is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer can be snuffed out. Have you ever uh, had, a, had a birthday cake? And you had those trick candles? Do you guys know that they make, you know, like like special grade trick candles? Like you have you have the lower grade trick candles and you have the ones that are like just, I mean, they just keep they just keep lighting up again. I mean, and I don't know how, how, how they do it because like it, it goes out for a little bit, and like ten seconds later the thing's on fire again. And I just had that picture of when I started to think about, wow, okay. We can't quench the Holy Spirit literally in the sense the person of the Holy Spirit but we can we have the ability to quench his working in our lives. He lights a fire we go Pfft. but the beautiful thing about the Holy Spirit is if you're in Christ he keeps lighting that fire over and over again but the reality is we have the ability to also begin to snuff that out and how do we snuff that out? You, you read the rest of the first Thessalonians keep it in context Paul says rejoice always When we don't rejoice, guess what we're doing? We're quenching the Spirit. We're quenching His working in our heart. When we don't pray without ceasing, we're quenching the Spirit. When we don't give thanks and we're an ungrateful people and we complain about situations and circumstances, guess what we're doing? we're quenching the spirit when we despise prophecies right? and prophecy now we know is this is the spoken forth word of god and i'm not just talking about sunday mornings i'm talking about when you are in a family and when you're in relationship with other brothers and sisters and your brother or sister tries to speak some sense into you and they're speaking the word of god and you're like ah you have just despised prophecy and you've just quenched the holy spirit And then Ephesians 4, 29 through 32, talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you same concept here but now according to paul's teaching he's identified the holy spirit as a person not as some abstract thing because guess what only a person can be grieved the holy spirit is very personable a third member of the trinity who is god himself we have the ability to grieve the holy spirit and how do we do that when our hearts get bitter and we allow corrupting talk to come out of our mouths, we are grieving the Holy Spirit. When we don't use our mouths for the betterment of others, when we don't use our mouths to give grace to people, guess what? We're grieving the Holy Spirit. When we, don't, when we aren't kind, tender-hearted, and when we don't forgive, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. And when you really look at it, we quench the work of the Spirit by our disobedience, by our pride, by a rejection of the truth, and oftentimes the rejection of our identity. Um, Recently, I've been seeing a lot of moose cross the street. Have you guys ever observed a moose cross the street and his personality? At first, I used to think moose were just very dumb. In terms of uh, just like, man, they literally walk into a highway with cars that are going like, you know, 65 to 80 miles an hour and just, just, you, know, just you know, just walk across and maybe not very intelligent. I realized, man, I totally changed that sub- like presupposition. I realized that they're very intelligent. They're just very prideful. And I remember I happened to be the very first person that stopped. You know, normally I'm like the fifth person and, you know, people are yelling, hey, there's a moose, there's a moose, there's a moose. Say, okay, all right, thanks. But this time, I was the first person in line, and I saw this gigantic moose, biggest I've seen in in Anchorage. And um, I mean, really, this, this really happened, okay? He literally puts, you know, just one foot in front of the other and just begins walking at a very, very slow pace. And as soon as he gets to my car, he looks at me, and he stops. And he just looks at me for about 30 seconds, and I'm just staring at him. Then he takes another step, and there's something on the road that appeals to him, so he begins to eat it, and he doesn't, just, he doesn't move, and he just stays there holding traffic, in, and we only have one lane going each way, right? So everybody's held back, and he's literally, I mean, it's the longest moose crossing I've ever seen, at least, at least, like, at least five to eight minutes we're just waiting there, and he made eye contact, and he just began to walk. Have you ever ter- heard of the term walking with swagger? That's literally how this moose was walking with swagger. Prideful arrogance and his chest up and saying, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And when I saw that, (laughs) I must have looked crazy. I just started to like bust out laughing. Because I immediately, the word of God came to my heart. And I thought about how oftentimes I stifle the work of God in my life. And how often like a moose, you know, I, I just... God wants to show me something. God's, like, like, prompting me to do something or to say something. And for whatever reason, whether it's pride or whether it's just shame or, or, or fear or whatever it is, I just, like that moose, just stay there. And because God is gracious, I mean, he's, you know, he allows us to do that. How often do you and I quench the work of the Spirit in our life? You see, John 16, Jesus gives some central teaching on the Holy Spirit. Just read through it sometime and keep your eye open for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we know, convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the words of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. The Holy Spirit is the great counselor, the great encourager. And the imagery there is of someone that is literally beside you and encouraging you and trying to like it's like a coach saying, "Come on, keep keep pushing, keep going, you're doing great. Go, go, go." But so often, you know what the problem is? It happened in Genesis, and this is the problem today. Whether it's wrestling with ourselves or whether it's coming head-to-head with the great tempter, the question is, did God really say? Did God really say that? And we can say this about so many things, especially about what God says about us. You know, God says we are his and have value in him because we've been given his righteousness, but we buy into the lie of, did God really say? How many of you guys have, have ever struggled with the concept of God perfectly forgiving you? That was one of my biggest barriers because, man, there was just, you know, in my mind, there were just some things that I did. I was like, God, I don't know how you could forgive me for those things. How many of you have ever struggled with, with people pleasing? That you man, you just you find that your life is about really, I mean, driven by, by people around you and, and, and receiving their acceptance. How many of you are, are performance driven? That you find value and satisfaction in what you achieve and what you do? I'm not saying it's not important to, to work hard, but I'm just saying sometimes we can grab our, our very identity and our very worth from those things. But yet God is saying, you know what God thinks of us at Jesus' baptism? When Jesus came out of the water and the voice from the Father in heaven, do you remember what he said? He says, my son. And he didn't stop there, whom I love. And I'm well pleased. And if followers in Christ, if you are in Jesus Christ, guess what? The Father speaks those very same words over you. Amen? So I pray that Christ would be enough that we would genuinely examine our hearts to see what it what is it that we treasure and if you want some questions to ponder here are some what do you love what do you hate what do you want desire or crave what do you long for what do you seek aim for or pursue What are your goals and expectations? Where do you bank your hopes? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? What do you feel like doing? What do you think you need? What are your felt needs? What are your plans, agendas, strategies, and intentions designed to accomplish? What makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world in other words? And if you were just to even honestly answer those things, we would see what it is that we treasure. And we would have a clear that would give us maybe a more clear window into our lives and answering that question, do we really treasure Christ? There's a famous hymn in closing, and we can have the praise team come up. There's a famous hymn that some of you may know, it's called Saved by Grace. It's written by a very famous hymn writer by the name of Fanny Crosby. And for the longest time, my, in my church background, I grew up in a, in a uh, well, not grew up, but for a long time, I grew up in the Korean church, and they, they sang these hymns. So I know all the melodies, right? But all the words were in Korean. I, my Korean is very terrible. So I would often be like, man, I like could hear the song, and, the, you, know, you know, hymns have a certain melody. I would kind of go automatically into a sense of boredom. And then uh, when I had begun to read the words, in, in English actually, a language I understand, just blown away. And Fanny Crosby is a hymn writer that, that always blows me away. She was, she was born blind and she wrote over 7,000 hymns. And even uh, uh, D.L. Moody, um, you know, had popularized uh, uh, some of her hymns, but I would say my favorite Fr- uh, Fanny Crosby hymn is Saved by Grace and this hymn was called into being through a sermon preached by Dr. Howard Crosby, who was a des- distant relative and dear friend of Fanny's. Um, and he, he, he was preaching this message that Christians should not fear, fear death. For each, um, he was preaching that each of us has been given this grace. And um, <clears throat> that grace teaches us how to live well and how to die well. And afterwards, uh, his remarks were published in a newspaper, and Fanny Crosby had, had read had read this, or she had a friend read it to her, to her and It wasn't many hours after reading this that she began to write this hymn. but Fanny being the humble woman she is, this hymn almost never saw the light of day, and this hymn came to public notice by accident during. A conference that Fanny had attended in, in uh, Northfield, Massachusetts, and it was there that during this meeting, the great evangelist Deal Moody, uh, he you know in his preaching had looked to Fanny <laughs> and asked Fanny, "Would you would you give a personal testimony to, to the audience?" And not wanting to draw attention to her, herself, she she almost declined, <laughs> but she finally got up to speak, and this is what she said. There is one hymn I have written which has never been published, and I call it my soul's poem. Sometimes when I'm troubled, I repeat it to myself, for it brings comfort to my heart. And these are the words of this famous hymn. "Some day the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face, and I tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Someday my earthly house will fall. I cannot tell how soon twill be. But this I know, my all in all, has now a place in heaven for me. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Some day, when fades the golden sun beneath the rosy tinted west, my blessed Lord will say, well done, and I shall enter into rest. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Some day, till then, I'll watch and wait, my lamp all trimmed and burning bright, that when my Savior opens the gate, my soul to him may take its flight. And she closes, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. This is the age-old message of the cross. We put no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. And I pray that we too, as a church family, that we too could say the same thing, that when we see Jesus face to face, we too will tell the story of, hey, Jesus, saved by grace. That's it. It's the only explanation. We've been saved by your mercy. And I pray, brothers and sisters, I pray that the grace of Jesus would encourage you today. I pray that the grace of Jesus would would propel you to take action in your life. I pray that the grace of Jesus would propel you to forgive that person in your life that you have not been able to forgive. I pray that the grace of Jesus would empower you to be a radical and generous Christian to your neighbors and to your friends and to your family. I pray that the grace of Jesus would propel you to take the gospel to every sphere of influence you have so that much of Jesus can be made and we can show the world we indeed treasure Christ. Let us pray. Father God, you are amazing. And it's so hard, God, to to give attention to every one of your characters because God we know that you are triune God you are three in one God we thank you that, that the father sends the son and we thank you that the father and the son together send the Holy Spirit to empower the church God we thank you that you are a perfect family in yourself and we thank you that when you save us you graft us into the to the Trinity to be a family and God none of us here I pray none of us here boast in our ability to bring anything to the table Lord, we put no confidence in the flesh. Because if it were up to the flesh, we would stand under condemnation. And God, uh, Lord, I pray that we would all marvel at the grace of Jesus and the message of the cross and the power of your resurrection. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, God. Father, I pray that you would stir it in all of our hearts to treasure Jesus. That we would all come to the conclusion that there is Nothing in life in which we can place our hope in other than the person and work of Jesus. Maybe we're having some, some challenges in our marriage or maybe we're having challenges in, in child rearing. Maybe we're having challenges in, in finance or in the career field or in whatever else field. Maybe we're just having challenges. And God, it's so easy to place our hope in other things or to react to circumstances in our lives. I just pray that whatever situation it is, I'm praying that you would give us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see that you are all that we have. You are the only, only thing that is reliable and rock solid in our life. And Lord, we, if there's anything else that we're looking to, Lord, we repent. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for looking to other things other than you. And God, we want to not only just, just walk to you, we want to run to you and we want to embrace you. And we want to, we want to make sure that our life is, is planted on the firm foundation of Christ. And Lord, we know, as scripture tells us, it's easy it's easy to move our house off the foundation at times to, to slip off and, and to fall into maybe a gospel of legalism, a gospel of works, or a gospel of moralism. But Lord, again, we want to echo Paul's words. We put no confidence in the flesh. And any gain that we have in this life, we consider it as loss and we consider it as rubbish compared to this, the surpassing greatness and worth of knowing Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that in our hearts there would just be joy joy for the person of Christ. There would be joy for the work of Christ. There would be joy for the things of Christ. Be honored in our lives. Be lifted high. And would your name be brought much glory in our city, in our nation. It's in your name we pray. Amen.